Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy here. You're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MRKT Call. It's a daily video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we're joined by our friends Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young, that's EY of SoFi, for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. Tuesday, the 25th of July, 1 p.m. on the East Coast. Guy here, Dan's there. Very svelte, Dan, I might add. He had glasses on, but apparently glasses moray into something. I don't really even understand what moray means. By the way, this is the only the last Tuesday in July, which means tomorrow's the last Wednesday in July. I can continue going down that road, but I think you understand what I'm saying. This is Market Call, Dan. Today's Market Call brought to you by uh, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity you know, we got to get Laird Hamilton on this show at some point because he's just a badass and he does that. Can you join us on this program? And, and why why are you thinking about Laird Hamilton in this moment? Isn't here? he the cat that does – he's the surfer dude, right? He is the surfer dude. And, and he, he does actually... the CME commercials. So, like, if you watch those commercials on the TV, yeah. he's a guy, like, he's standing on the beach and he's looking over to the, the waves and he's all the numbers are going through his mind. And he's basically trying to figure out where the risk of the wave – meets the opportunity of the ride. See what I did there? Well, well, you know, like, you know, some people over at CME, you could probably get Terry or Anita or Colleen on the blower here. Maybe, maybe, maybe we could set that up guy. I'm I'm in for that. And by the way, obviously fact set provides our, you know, all our charts and what have you. They're a data provider, Dan, Uh, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Now, before we get started on this to his day, if I'm Saquon Barkley, which I'm not, the guy's a freak. I mean, you see pictures of him. He is a specimen, but I would call my agent or my uh, legal staff and I say, you know what? You're summarily fired because they really led him down the improper path. He did sign with the Giants a one-year deal, a $2 million signing bonus. Good for Saquon. He'll be playing for another contract next year. But listen, as you know, Dan, they can probably tag him again next year. So the life of an NFL running back, not dissimilar to the life of somebody that's been fighting a very bullish tape. That would be yours truly. That is is a fact um you know it's interesting we had a lot of great feedback from our on the tape podcast we had mike wilson um on on friday and i guess on monday in his note i mean he said clearly um we have been wrong about his call for the first half of this year he was very right for the back half of 2021 and all of 2022 being bearish he made a couple tactical bullish calls mm-hmm. but, you know the other thing is i think it's important to remember is that he also in the throes of the pandemic when the, the s&p was down 35 percent, he also made a big bullish call 
um, there too. So it's just kind of interesting, kind of the sort of back and forth. And I'm just bringing that up right now, guy, because you said you've been fighting this market. I've been fighting this market. Um, we're coming on kind of six and a half months or so, or you know, nearly seven months of fighting a little bit here um and you know it, it's really hard to look at a lot of the charts guy like no matter what you're looking at and not say that things like if we could take all the stuff that we think we know about economics not being economists all the things that we think we know about mm -hmm. you know like like prior recession signals prior like like economic like events that might lead to bear markets and risk assets Throw all that out there. Just do what Carter Braxton Worth does and look at the pictures and you can paint a rosier picture than you and I are kind of leaning into at the moment. Yeah, without question. I mean, we talk about it all the time. You actually were talking about the NASDAQ months ago, how the chart looked fantastic. And subsequently, the S&P has followed. S&P broke that August high from last year, uh, traded higher for a couple of days, did the back and fill back to that then support level. And we've been off to the races ever since. And you know, here we are into a pretty interesting series of earnings over the next couple of weeks, specifically, obviously today. And you're right. I mean, the charts look great. Problem is, you know, as good as the charts look, that's how shitty I think some of the fundamentals are out there as well. And that's sort of the push and the pull of this entire thing. At some point, somebody's going to emerge victorious. And you know, I would submit that all the things that you learned in school, I learned in school that we've been through in terms of the markets, they're going to come home to roost at a certain point, And we might be on the precipice of something. And if we can pull probably our first slide, we can yeah. talk about how it always looks great until it doesn't. And that's not meant to be glib. But, you know, things typically everything looks fine until things change. And when they change, they change extraordinarily quickly. Yeah, so this is this is a good one here. So this is our boy Cantro. He's got a nice following there um, on the Twitter. He's also, um, you know, he's been on our podcast before. We think very highly uh, of Mike here, and I think that this tweet is is kind of an interesting one. Or it's an it's a, called a Zeet now or Zeet or something. No, like it's that. Twitter. It's it's a tweet. No, they're changing it, dude. It's it's going to be a Zeet. I mean, let me ask you a question. Yeah. When that who's that cat Zuckerberg? He changed the name of his company, right? Meta. Yeah. I don't. But have you have you heard me utter that name? No. Uh, I mean, what did they change? Years ago, the Google they changed too, right? To the alphabet, but but it's different. I mean, like literally, they, they I think Elon wants to erase all existence of the word Twitter. Twitter, which I think is kind of interesting, but let, let's look at this tweet from Cantro. And so recession surprise investors every time it always looks like a soft landing until it doesn't. And then when the minds are changed too soon to declare it's different this time. And so many have done so before behavioral patterns repeat across history. And I think it's interesting to go back and look at 2007 in October, September of 2000. Uh, and then obviously all the way back to March, 1990. And, and you see what, uh, Cantro's throwing down here. I, I guess there's probably other instances where some of this data looked the same, but we didn't end up having recession. So that doesn't make the the tweet here, guy. Um, thoughts here because we we this is also something we spent a lot of time in our podcast with Mike Wilson talking about, like how we could be wrong, how he could be wrong about S and P earnings. You know, part of the theme that he's talked about is, is that you know, like we've seen S and P earnings hold up because we've seen companies kind of slightly lower the bar than meet that lowered estimates, right? And so, yeah, we've still seen a flattening out of earnings, but we haven't seen an all-out decline, which many, at the end of last year, when the S&P was trading south of 4,000, it got, what is, 36.50 or something like that, maybe a little mm -hmm. lower, guy. You know, a lot of folks were thinking that in the first half of this year, we'd be in a recession, and the Fed would be going from, you know, raising rates as aggressively as it had to possibly cutting rates. 
Right. And what's amazing about that is the fact that they're still on this higher for longer and the market hasn't blinked an eye. I mean, that to me would have been the worst of the two outcomes for the market. Yet it seems, well, it's not, I can't say it's a better outcome. You can't do the counterfactual. But with that said, you know, the market seemingly shrugging all these things off. And Doug Cass seems to be in our head because he's been texting me. He might be texting you. And he's been talking about some of the things that we've been bringing up as well. There's sort of this reacceleration in energy prices. And again, that UPS Teamster deal, I mean, that is inflationary. And that's something I think we talked about on Fast Money. But if you think about it, it speaks to wage inflation and the fact that you got to pay people more. And that's out there as well, which makes the Fed's job that much more difficult, which is why I think when you hear from them, I don't know how the market's going to interpret it, but they're going to be hawkish because A, they have to be. And B, because the market suggests they have enough flexibility and enough wiggle room and enough rope where they can be. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that? And I think that's a theme that we're going to hear a lot about. It's like right now, I think some of the narratives out there is that we're doing really bad as a country with illegal immigration. And we're also doing really badly with legal immigration, right? So like, so, and one of the things that we need to kind of help this, like the Fed situation as it relates to wages and and 70 year low unemployment, I guess we need more legal immigration because there was a report out this morning, and I think it was in Bloomberg, was talking about the chip industry and all the onshoring and all the incentives that exist, right? With this CHIPS Act and the IRA and all this sort of stuff. Part of it is kind of kind of manufacturing chips here in the U.S., creating fabs. We keep seeing this kind of pushed out. But the report that I read this morning is that by 2030, we're going to need like 115,000 really skilled workers to work in these fabs and make these chips. And if you're just looking at immigration levels, if you're looking at graduation levels from, you know, like engineering schools and, and, and the like here, we're going to come up short by maybe half of that. And I just think that's really interesting. So what does that do? That puts out greater demand for wages for good workers. And if we do have that sort of inflation embed itself in the economy, after we've become really used to cheap labor for 50 years, which has kept down consumer prices, right, for a very long time. I mean, that is really a, a conundrum that the Fed is not going to be able to fix, whether mm -hmm. they go 25 basis points, you know, tomorrow or not, right? Like, we might be, find ourselves in a much higher for longer environment because of the way some of these things are working against themselves and maybe they are different this time. I, I agree with that. And that speaks to, a, you know, I'm reading the comments as I'm, as we're talking and Gary made a comment, I'm sure it was meant to be derogatory, but he said something to the effect that, you know, if the strike continued, or if there was a strike, I would be saying it's inflationary because it's disrupting supply chains. And yeah, maybe I would have said that. I don't know. I mean, that's one of those situations though, either outcome you can make an argument would be inflationary. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just pulling stuff out to sort of uh, defend our narrative. I mean, that's what's out there right now. And to your point, you know, they being the Federal Reserve, I think they understand the predicament that they find themselves in. The rhetoric around it and people talking about soft landings and threading needles and all the bullshit that you hear. I mean, I don't necessarily think they've bought into it because quite frankly, if they have, I don't think they'd be as hawkish as they are. So we'll see. Yeah. And again, you know, we, you should listen to that podcast with Mike on Friday that dropped. You know, he talked about, you know, in terms of history, we're right there at what should be the beginning of the lag effect kicking in. I thought it would take place sooner. It didn't. But here we are effectively, you know, 18 or so months down the road from when this entire rate height cycle started. And again, you know, Doug mentioned it. I'll mention it again because I think it's important. 
9.1% CPI in June of last year. Now we're sort of on the other side of things where it's going to be more difficult uh, for that trajectory lower to continue. And I would submit, and I think that data's probably going to back it up, you're going to start to see a reacceleration of inflation over the next few months. And that's going to catch people off guard. And we're going to do a trade, I believe, or we're going to take a look at gasoline and some of the stocks around it. I mean, very quietly, Dan, gasoline's yeah. going to a 52-week high. So there you go. Yeah, no doubt. Let, 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 let's look at the S&P futures here, the E-minis here, guy, because I think this is kind of interesting. You know, we're getting into the kind of meat of, of mega cap earnings here. And when you talk about just kind of, you know, levels here, you see this kind of runaway breakout. I mean, where were we got to like kind of 4,100 and at some point in, in kind of mid-June. And it looked like, you know, we're just kind of stuck in that consolidation above those kind of highs from early February or so. And and there you go. It's just like a launch pad. It's 4,100 uh, to 4,600 here. And you look at that breakout level um, from last August, that was what, 4,350 or so. I mean, listen, man, until we go back and put a little fear in this market you know I, I just really have a hard time thinking about how the market can go that much higher we know the all-time high was in and around 4800 the first week of january of 2022 and you look at that 200-day moving average it's kind of picking itself up a little bit here it's it's almost up to that 4100 level i really feel like a lot of the um i guess a lot of the debate you know about you know just valuations as it relates to the market, um, what's priced in, how much of this AI hype has worked itself into all over the market, I think would come out if we saw an S&P, you know, headed back towards its 200-day moving average. A little fear would be something that I think would be, you know, kind of welcomed by bulls, especially if you're looking for a reacceleration of some of the themes that have gotten things going. And, you know, the other part is, it's like, listen, there's a lot of stocks that are joining the party right now. You know, we talked about some of these regional banks. We talked about the major money center banks, how they've acted since their earnings, even like a Bank America, which is, you know, flat on the years, had this mm -hmm. huge run, you know, breaking out of his own. So there's lots of things that transport. You've, you've seen that your home builders guys got a guy got back on their horse a little bit. And this is with a 10 year at three point, you know, nine or so. Listen, there's a, it's a, there's clearly a money flow situation as well. I mean, you know, I think people that now think we're on sort of terra firma in terms of the economy uh, are finding stocks that they deem to be value and they're throwing money at them. And I think that's why you've seen some of the moves you've seen. So on valuation, they're probably justified. Again, in terms of these banks, these regional banks, I'll say it again, in the absence of bad news, they're just going to levitate. And that's exactly what's happened. And I'm not just saying this today. I mean, this has been something we've probably been saying since late April, early May, um, and that's played out okay. I don't believe it. It doesn't matter. I mean, you make money whether you believe it or not if things you own will go up. So I think there's something else to happen in the regional banks. Sheila Bear was on Fast Money last week. She said pretty much the same thing. And I think to a certain extent, um, the consumers might be at sort of the intersection of all of this because I do think you're going to get to a point where they're going to start to be challenged and it's going to manifest itself, I think, in lower earnings for regional banks and some of these regional banks going by the wayside. In terms of the S&P here, I think you're right to point out, you know, each passing day that we go higher, I think it just makes that inevitable move down to the moving average that much more violent. So even if the most ardent bulls, I think you want to see at some point just a reasonable pullback to sort of flush the system a bit, Dan.
Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, I'm looking at my fact set screen here, guys. I see a lot of green. So we saw some of the big tech names sell off, you know, since the earnings last week from Tesla and Netflix. And we saw money flow into like some of the sectors that we just talked about. But on a day like today, and this is post GM's earnings, it's down 4%. And, you know, looking at what the, you know, the airlines and some of the results that we had and looking the way that they are acting today. You know, when you just mentioned the consumer, that's kind of why I thought about it. I mean, we went from some really weird dynamics post-pandemic when the auto sector and the airline sector, whatever, and it seems like that's kind of coming undone a little bit here. So I think that's really interesting to keep an eye on those. One day does not make um, a trend by any means. Another name that you talked about, and we are talking about consumer discretion. I think Tim Unfast Money brought it up last night. He was talking about his short in Nike. I mean, some of those names kind of feel like they're falling um, by the wayside um, a little bit. But then on the flip side of it, look at Cleveland Cliffs up 8% today. FCX up 4%. Alcoa up nearly 7%. Leather yeah. up 3.5%. I mean, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's stocks making two-day moves here that look really, really powerful. And they do look sort of pro-cyclical. They look pro-growth. You know what I mean? They look like the sort of things that people would buy if you think that the economy is about to inflect a little right. bit. Right. And and, and it's, it probably speaks to what we just talked about a few minutes ago, this sort of potential reacceleration of inflation. And that probably is a good segue to this question from Justin Power. Do you think China is in good investment now, uh, considering the trouble ahead here in the U.S. economy? So I look at China through the lens of the FXI. Obviously, their economy is somewhat uh, manufactured to a point and engineered. The FXI is an interesting animal here. It's been sort of going sideways for a while. I think we can speak about the components. I think there's a chance you could get it back to sort of the 33 level. That's where we failed in January. And that's also, if you go back and look where we failed this time last summer. So that's a reasonable place to get. And listen, a $4 move in uh, the FXI here is probably a 12 or 13% move to the upside. So I think that can be anticipated. The question is how long lasting it's going to be. And if you look, um, every rally, every meaningful rally has been sort of sold off over the last couple of years. And then if you go back and really look, I mean, the FXI effectively has been trading effectively sideways for the last 13 and a half, 14 years. So it's clearly a trading vehicle. I don't necessarily know if it's an investment thesis, though, Dan. You know, it's interesting. When you think about this, it's just amazing how much some of these indices or these ETFs have just been just permeated by, you know, like tech stocks. And, and the top holdings, Alibaba, Medawan, Tencent, they're all about 9% each. So that's 27%. They're all, you know, digital companies. JD is about 4.5%. Baidu is about 4.5%. NetEase is about 4.5%. So that's, you know, digital, it's internet, it's, 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 um, gaming and, and the like here. So, you know, you're getting to a situation where the FXI is basically 40% some of these kind of internet names or gaming names and, and the like here. So all that's kind of interesting. And then what, what I think is most interesting about that, it really does feel like a domestic play. It's not like our major tech companies, which get a disproportionate or not a disproportionate, but maybe 30, 40, in some cases, 50% of their sales from outside the U.S. I mean, these are largely getting their sales from inside the U.S. Then you have China Construction Bank. And, you know, so there's insurance companies, there's industrial companies. There's a bunch of stuff in there. I mean, that's how you play the the, the China trade. But let me just tell you, the data in China, we're, we're trying to pick holes in what looks like, I'm just going to say it, guy, a lot of people are saying this, a Goldilocks sort of situation here in the U.S. Over there, it just seems like downright nasty. I mean, it really does seem bad. And so to me, you know, 
we're talking about keeping rates, you know, normalizing rates somewhere well above they did at the you know, last cycle here. They're talking about continuing to ease. Yeah. And when was the yuan devalue, the, the meaningful one? I think it was August of 2015. It might have been 16. You know, I'm getting older, so I forget. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not saying, again, we're on the precipice of that. But that's something you have to take into consideration as well as things continue to slow. And maybe they start to lose the ability to engineer things. Let's take a look at the NASDAQ real quick, because, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this is something you've said for quite some time. It probably goes back to the spring that the chart looked great. And this uptrend that's been intact continues to sort of uh, make its move from lower left to the upper right. My concern, the same way my concern is with the S&P, not necessarily that it doesn't look good, but with each passing day, when you get standard deviations away from the moving average, which is historically somewhat mean reverting, uh, it becomes a slippery slope, right? I mean, it, unless something has changed or unless time suggests the moving average will catch up and that will take a long time. You know, these things typically happen in a pretty violent way. So as I said earlier about the S&P, I'll say the same thing here. With each passing day that we just sort of levitate, I think it makes the inevitable that much more uh, violent. Well, listen, a lot of this is obviously going to come down to how these mega cap earnings are. Tonight, after the close, we have Microsoft and we have Alphabet, and both are implying about a 5% move in either direction. And when you think about Microsoft as a $2.5 trillion market cap company, you do the math on that, that's $125 billion move they could have in, in either direction. You know, Alphabet, um, a little different here. It's at one point, you know, uh, $5 trillion or so. But I think that, you know, um, just kind of considering that the price action we saw after Tesla and Netflix last week, and you know Netflix is a much smaller company than any of these, and Tesla was I think 900 or so uh, billion that sold off nine and a half percent. I mean, if we were to have you know Microsoft sell off five plus percent or so, and and a couple more of those, you're going to have the Nasdaq futures. You're going to have them back testing that uptrend line, and I think that a lot of folks, guy might be really interested in reloading, you know, just south of 14,000 in the NASDAQ futures here. And it might be a level that you would start to pick at because if that was the case, then that means some of the froth in and around AI came out of some of the biggest names in the market. And so if the fundamentals on some of these are okay, it's just the valuation has expanded, you know, you'd welcome a 10% yeah. pullback. In, That's going to be the back. trick, right? If, if in fact we do get a sell-off, and again, I think we both think it's going to happen. We've thought it for a while, just to put it out there. But the trick is going to be, if it starts to happen, there's going to be, for a lot of people, and I might be one of those people, it's hard to say at this point, but there's going to be a, there's going to be a want to sort of say, okay, that's the sell-off. Let's just get back on solid footing in terms of our uh, thought process, and then we can go from there. I think that's sort of the knee-jerk reaction, where the right reaction might be, okay, this is starting to finally take hold. Let's see how low this thing can get. So I totally understand what you're saying in terms of looking for a level to reload, but that actually might be the wrong trade if things start to unravel. Well, and, and then I would say it really depends on your time horizon. Okay. Like, so for instance, for me, you know, we talk about when we trade futures, you know, using stops all the time. Right. But it all depends how you risk manage a position, how you enter a position, because let's just say you start, let's say the S and P or the, these NASDAQ futures were back at 14,000 guy. Right. And so let's just say you said, I'm going to start building a position. I'm going to dollar cost average. And I think it's ultimately going to get back to that 200 day moving average, which is maybe down another thousand points. Right. If you will, 
from like, you know, levels where it might make sense to start a quarter of a position, then you would just kind of average into it. If you're thinking about, okay, this is a position that I want to hold for quarters or possibly years and I want to work myself into it rather than buying a full position and then putting a really tight stop on it and then moving that stop as you kind of go, you know, further in the direction in which you hope. So to me, I, I just think that's a really important part of trading. And, you know, all during like 2022, you know, when the market was going lower and you and I, you know, on, on, on CNBC, we'd be asked, what's your buy point? What's your buy point? You know, when would you pull your, your kind of bearish thesis and buy? And what I would say is like, listen, if you're not a trader and you're not thinking about two-way action, right? If you're looking about the long-term and you do dollar cost average, then all during 2022, if you would dollar cost average in the NASDAQ futures, you know what I mean? Or the, or the QQQ or the ETF that tracks them, you know, you would have ended up with a, a pretty good price, you know, after one year of a, a downturn that, you know, reached more than 30% or something like that. So to me, it really depends on your time horizon and whether you view something as a trade and how you basically invest and how you work into a position. Let's look at the VIX real quick, um, just to take a gander, because it seems to have found a bit of a home on the downside. And it's, you know, there have been a couple of days where it appears to want to sort of peek its head up only to sort of get knocked down. But, you know, here we are. You had obviously that one one day move to the upside, maybe a day and a half, but it gave it all back. Again, I'm not suggesting this says anything and I'm not suggesting you trade it. But I have heard some commentary out there that there's been some people playing for a pretty significant move in the VIX. Maybe we'll be hearing more about that over the next couple of weeks. Um, but again, Every time it sort of gets down to these levels, the, the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, what are we doing here? And for those that sell volatility, am I getting paid enough to do so? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a fact. And I mean, at this point, if you're just like selling calls against long positions to take in some premium, you're not really getting a whole heck of a lot um, for that. Let's talk yields for a second here, guy. We have the Fed meeting tomorrow. The CME Fed fund tracker is pricing a near you know, certainty that they're going to raise 25 basis points. I guess the real question comes down to is kind of what is their outlook for rates? So are they going to stay higher for longer? What do we start pricing as far as cuts in the, you know, some point in 2024? Thoughts on rates here. You've been really focused on this kind of um, 100 basis point um, inversion um, in the 210 spread or so. And just, you know, it's 99.9. You thought when it kind of re-steep into 45 basis points or so about a month and a half ago that we'd get back to the wides near one. Um, but, you know, you and Liz had a great conversation on the tape on Monday, and it's not just kind of, you know, where we are as far as that inversion. It really is. You guys seem focused on the fact is how we get to a re-steepening yeah. of this and what that means for the economy and what it might mean for risk assets. And listen, Elizabeth does this. I mean, you know, in her seat, she's read a lot more. She understands this a lot better than I do. But one of the things she's been saying, not for weeks, but for months, is this: the inversion was troublesome, and it is. But what troubled her more was the point where we start to re-steepen or steepen at all. And we saw that, obviously, you know, a month and a half or two months ago, only to find this inversion back to about a percent. Now it's anybody's guess. And again, I'm not trying to sort of look at it through my um, bearish lens, but I think to be further inverted at this point, to go out to maybe 125 basis points, I don't think that's particularly good. And the point that Liz has been making, if we start to re-steepen, it's probably going to think people are going to think it's good, but hist history suggests it's not. That's when things actually start going pear-shaped. So we're at a really weird level here in terms of the twos, tens. And one of the things that I've said for a while is, 
it's hard for me to understand it when clearly the bond market doesn't understand it either. And I say that, again, watching days that we move 8, 10, 15 basis points in either two-year yields or 10-year yields. I mean, historically, that's something that shouldn't happen, but seemingly happens on a weekly basis now. Yeah, I, I love that phrasing of that is like the bond market hasn't figured out what, what it wants to do either. And if you look at that 10-year chart and you, you look at the kind of, you know, we have this kind of, you know, narrowing of this range here. We were holding the 200-day moving average. If the 10-year got to 4%, you'd say, fine. If it doesn't break out, it might be on its way back to 3.5%. And, you know, what does 3.5% of the 10-year mean for growth and, and the like? What does it mean for the 210 spread? What What is, what is the, the, the shorter end? Um, doing at that point so that'll be really interesting to kind of track and see i mean to me i'm most interested to see how the the um you know yields react to what the fed has to say tomorrow but one 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 thing and you've been all over this and i think you know i think it was late june we i tried to on this program you know press a little bit crude oil it was trading around 70 i thought we'd have a retest of those um kind of mid to low 60s i put a tight stop on that it got stopped out um at 72 but then when we were thinking about this move here i mean guy you know on a one-year basis you look at this crude chart i know you want to talk about gasoline but we've just broken that downtrend and that uptrend that's been in place just for you know the last kind of month or so this looks like a pretty like powerful setup if it can kind I think of maybe so. consolidate and, here yeah. and, and make and make a move back towards those highs from a couple months ago and then maybe I think take the April highs in, I mean I think the April high was probably 83 or so in TI. I think we probably take a run at it and suggest, you know, through this downtrend line we probably should. You know, we finally gotten through uh the 200-day moving average, which is a good thing. And you know, they pressed shorts pressed bears pressed for months unable to break it now again they've probably lost the battle now i think the bulls sort of have the upper hand and i think it's going to play itself out it's certainly playing itself out in some of these energy names if we can take a quick look jacob throw the oih up real quick i mean this was 245 dollars i want to say late may early june and i think today we just made a 52 week high uh so again very quietly you've had this move that nobody seemingly is talking about um, and within a couple of points now, you're going to start talking about multi-year highs in the OIH. By the way, I still think it goes higher. Gasoline, though, let's pull up a gas chart because, again, Doug Cass has been talking about this. We've been talking about this. You have a 52-week high in gasoline. It doesn't show it right now, but trust me, late last week, we made a 52-week high in gas. With that said, I mean, we're right there. And I think gasoline, it's telling its own story. And by the way, this is gasoline before any of the seasonality of hurricane season comes in. And if you've been paying attention to the weather and, you know, I'm not talking about climate change and I'm just saying pay attention to what's going on globally. And you would believe that, you know, gas is in for really interesting late summer, early fall. And that's obviously inflationary. And quickly, if you want to pull up a Valero chart, because I think this obviously is working, too. I mean, Valero pushed down to about 104 the crack spreads were not working for VLO when crude was uh, sort of on its ass. But now this is starting to reaccelerate as well. And this is an environment where refiners are really going to start to win. So that's how I look at the energy trade in a nutshell. Fair enough. So you're thinking higher for gasoline. You've been talking about it on our pods. Also, Guy, that you know a reacceleration in inflation might be the thing that, that basically causes a consumer 
to possibly break as the saving rates are going down. You know, unemployment, I guess, can only go one way at this point here. And again, I think you and I have made this point on many occasions. It's not like we're hoping for unemployment to go up. So we're right about the stock market by any means. I think there are a lot of scenarios because of what we started out talking about, the, some of the weird um, immigration dynamics and the holdover from the pandemic and all this sort of stuff. I mean, we are basically don't have enough workers to do a lot of the jobs that this country is going to need to do if we really want to kind of, you know, bifurcate a bit from our reliance on cheap manufacturing in China and the supply chains, which proved to be a very difficult situation in a black swan event, you know, for a national security, um, you know, standpoint. And then we haven't even really talked about the geopolitical stuff, which we don't really need to, but all those disruptions that in and around, you know, what happened with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, whether it was energy or grains or this or whatever. I mean, that, as I think you've said, could play out in spades if there was anything as it relates to China and chips in Taiwan and the like here. Look, so, 100%. And China, Taiwan, I mean, if, if you want to look at a, a Twitter account, take a look at Kyle Bass or Google Kyle Bass and go to videos. I think he was just on Squawk Box today's yesterday. Tuesday. He might have been on yesterday talking about some of the things that he watches and the warning signs are clearly there. I mean, there's obviously a policy of appeasement going on, and that's not just this administration, you know, other than, I guess, the prior one. I mean, that's been the strategy for quite some time, and, you know, it sort of works until it doesn't. And I do think, unfortunately, something is going to rear its ugly head there, and that could be potentially, and I'm choosing this word, catastrophic for a lot of these multinationals if, in fact, China did something in Taiwan. Before we get out of here, uh, the implied move of Microsoft, let's pull up a chart because... I think that's obviously what everybody is watching for this afternoon. I know we'll obviously lead fast money with it tonight, um, but I think there's an applied move of about 5% or so. This trend line is intact. Um, you see where the 200-day uh, moving average is, about 275, which is at this point now $75 lower, which, again, is quite remarkable. When you get towards you know a couple standard deviations away, and you can look at this chart historically, the mean reversion we've seen, you have to ask yourself, how long can this uh, move last? You know, it's interesting, Guy, and I had a great conversation with Gene Munzer of Deep Asset, uh, a deep water asset management. Um, yesterday, it dropped in the podcast stores on the on the tape feed, and Gene um, and I went through Microsoft and Google's report, Meta, later this week, and then we have Apple and Amazon next week. So take a listen to that if you want to hear what Gene had to say, because we talked about Microsoft, and we talked about the pricing of their co-pilot, the office suite of AI tools, which really, I think, um, a lot of bulls were pretty excited about the stock rally 5% in a straight line. That was a week ago last Tuesday. We were talking about it on market call as it happened. Gave back all those gains. Came all the way back, guy, to 340. If you look at this chart, though, and you look at that 340 as a kind of a breakout level, and you see the fact that we bounced off of it, you see yourself, you know, the stock just just kind of caught a little support there, man. You know, you know what I mean? And so, you know, Gene had this really great point, though. It was like, listen, that was the upside that they're able to kind of guide to, if you will, right? And maybe they give some more clarity on it. I doubt that they're going to be able to give that much visibility um, on what that means in the current quarter. But if it's better than people expect, I mean, maybe that, maybe 340 is support. But the flip side of it is, if for any reason they miss and any reason they guide down, this stock's going through 340 very, very quickly, and it's probably on its way back to 320. And 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 that could happen like that. So I, you know, thoughts there, guy, on how you might be positioned if you're long. Maybe you don't have to just kind of peel out of it. I'm not thinking about you know, initiating new long positions. And 
you know, it just seems like you might end up having a lot more information tomorrow morning after the call and after you see the initial reaction to the stock. And that might be the place to trade it. Last quarter by Microsoft standards was not great. Um, it suggested slowing growth with the mar market seemed to shrug off, but people got jazzed about AI and then you've seen the subsequent move. So I've said this and I think I'm right. I think so much of this move, at least since March, April, May, has been all predicated on multiple expansion. People are willing to pay more for a dollar's worth of earnings. And maybe that's going to be justified. You know, maybe this is a company that can grow into the earnings. But right now, at current price, you have a stock trading north of 31 times next year's numbers. That's just historically expensive for a mature company, regardless of what new industry they're getting in. So, yeah, it's concerning. And you have seen moves to the downside before in Microsoft. And, you know, I think the AI card has probably been played and this is a quarter where people might be more focused on what appears to be slowing cloud growth. So we'll see. And again, it's not trying to be dogmatic. It's just sort of reading the tea leaves. You know, here we are, figure it out from there. But that 275 seems like light years away, Dan. Yeah. So then the other one tonight after the close is Alphabet. That would be the Google 5% or so implied move in either direction. And what's interesting about Alphabet guy is just the relative underperformance, you know, versus some of the larger platform peers, if you will, up 37% um, on the year. I know that sounds ridiculous. I'm saying the relative underperformance. I think there's lots of folks who thought that Microsoft gains um, were at the expense of Google and some of the kind of their slow reaction to their open AI um, collaborations that Microsoft have been able to announce for Bing and for their productivity tools. Well, look at this thing. You see it consolidating in and around that August high here. From a valuation standpoint, I mean, this is a company that trades about 23 times this year, a little less than 20 times next. So far, far cheaper, let's say, than um, you know a Microsoft and an Apple, you know, double-digit expected uh, earnings growth, I think mid to high teens for the next few years, and then high single digits um, sales growth this year and about 11% next year. So, you know, the guy trades cheap-ish, but I think uh, going back to my conversation with Gene Munster, he also sees, while he's very positive on this one, he also sees that the near-term headwinds, right? So maybe it's in cloud, maybe it's in, in, in just kind of the perception about where they are with search and what this kind of chat GPT enabled Bing or other services might be a headwind to Google's search business. You know, that's one thing. Listen, if this thing is back below 110, I think it gets bought. I would probably buy it myself as long as there's not any big disasters. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, guy, you know, maybe some of these stocks just air comes out of them. If everyone heads for the door at the same time, maybe there doesn't have to be a meaningful guy down. It could be like Tesla where three consecutive weak quarters of gross margins is just enough for people. And they sell first, ask questions later. Without question, um, you know, Google's the one we talk about in terms of being reasonable or actually attractive on valuation. And that's been true for quite some time. It was true all the entire way down. And it's been true since the move in early March on the way back up. But to, Google's also been the one that has said some disappointing things uh, a few times over the last couple of years. So they're not immune from obviously uh, the, the whims of the market. So you could see a move down to that 103 level. And that really would make sense. And, you know, that probably continues this uptrend. It probably would find support in an uptrend we've been in since February or so, Dan. Yeah. Okay. Um, here, here's one, one last thing before we get out of here, guy. And I want to kind of highlight this. So Spotify is trading down nearly 15% today. It was down 5% yesterday. They announced a price increase yesterday, the day before their earnings 
of one dollar for like their premium you know like streaming service on the music i mean look at the sort of move that stock you know um heading into its print was up more than a hundred percent off those lows guy it was up a hundred percent um on the year to see the stock go down from 180 to 140 like that over a couple headlines i think you gotta pay attention to this yeah. and i'm not this is not a hundred billion dollar market cap no, it's, but it's about 28 billion dollar market yeah. cap so it's not like it's a billion and a half dollar company i mean that's a significant company and to your point when you have moves of this magnitude seemingly coming out of nowhere because if you looked at this chart three days ago you would have said my god this looks lower left upper right this is going to continue its trajectory and it goes back to the original slide that we had with cantrell i mean Things look great until they don't. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting the entire market is predicated on Spotify. That's not what you're saying either. Yep. But you can see things like this happen as you're looking at right now. Well, yeah. And I just want to bring one other point because a name that I think could could have a big move one way or another is Snap. And they report after the close tonight. And, you know, that stock, if you think about it, has a massive implied move, about $2.90 in either direction. That is what the stock market um, is implying that's nearly like a 20% move in either direction. The stock, you know, snap is up 40% um, on the year right now. It's had a huge run. A lot of those gains are coming just in the last couple of months. And again, this is obviously also a much smaller market cap company than many of its large social peers at about $20 billion uh, market cap. But how this stock reacts, I think, to whatever they have to say on the current quarter in guidance is going to be really important on a gap basis. They're barely profitable um, here. So, you know, again, Spotify loses money. Maybe we're going to see a bifurcation guy, again, to use that word, of companies that make money and are harnessing some of these things, these secular themes that investors are really excited about, right? Um, and ones that can't keep up and can't continue to guy higher you know, maybe those are the ones that just kind of get baby with the bathwater here. So that to me, um, pretty interesting to keep an eye on. Let's see how spot closes and let's see how snap reacts to what's likely to be probably not a great quarter in guidance. Buckle in people. It's going to be interesting in the next few hours for sure. So we'll back tomorrow, regardless of what happens. I want to thank CME group, our sponsor where risk meets opportunity, obviously facts that financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow, tomorrow, Dan, We'll be back with the great Carter Braxton Worth. We'll be breaking shit down left and right. Yeah, we will. All right. Thanks, guy. That was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Thanks for all you guys being here. Thanks for the comments. We'll see you tomorrow with Carter. Carter.